as you find your seats, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, as we continue in our sermon series here in January, first things first, uh, this is week four. If you don't have a Bible, no worries, the words are going to be on the screen, but also in front of you in the pew, there's a Bible there, if you want to follow along uh, that way as well. Well, raising four children, all of which uh, played athletics all the way through college, much of Katie and my life as a married couple have been going to sports games, supporting our kids in their athletic endeavors. And I got to tell you, one of the greatest joys of our life was doing that. Uh, probably not one minute I didn't just love watching our kids play sports. Well, truth is, there are some minutes I want to throw up. And there were some moments you were so nervous for them, you know, you could hardly watch. It's amazing. I would, it's so much harder to watch your kid play than you do something else, you know. Not just the injury, but wanting them to do well. Uh, and i got, I got to tell you, watching your kids grow up play sports, there's different levels of competition, especially as you start off playing sports that first year or two in a new sport. Interesting stuff, right? Kind of more humor sometimes than it is competition. Uh, I'll never forget when our youngest, Allie, uh, played her first year of basketball uh, as an elementary student. Um, and, you know, I tell you what, scoring was not a big thing uh, for the uh, women's, uh, the girls' elementary basketball. Usually at halftime, it might be two to two, right? But I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this one game. Uh, right after halftime, our niece, Marjorie Ward, Taylor's in here somewhere, his daughter, uh, she took an inbound to start the second half, and I don't know what got into her, I don't know what Gatorade she drank at halftime, I don't know what speech they gave her, but you should have seen her, she's fired up, right? She gets the ball, she dribbles with great authority down the court, and she pulls up at the three-point line. This is a elementary school girl. You're like, whoa, 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 you're trying to the hoop? She pulls up at the three-point line, I'm telling you, she had the shot of all shots. I mean, this thing was beautiful from the moment it left her hand. Right rotation on the ball, had it swish. Nothing but net. The crowd erupted because she shot at the wrong basket. I mean, it was beautiful. Three points, wrong team. You know, I think we lost by three points that game. <laughs> but... It's, 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 it's always difficult when you realize that you're actually shooting at the wrong goal or you actually have the, uh, the wrong goal in your life, pursuing it all in vain. It's not just true in sports, it's true in life. Are we aiming at the right goal? I mean, we got to think about that oftentimes. Really, are we pursuing the right things? Are we filling our life with the right stuff? Are we aiming at the right targets? Are we pursuing the right dreams? Well, this morning, is, as I mentioned, is part four of our sermon series, First Things First. And this morning, we're going back to what we did last year. We're going back to Jesus' words on the most famous of sermons. It's a Sermon on the Mount. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, again, it's become a famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. And there's many things that Jesus tells his followers in that sermon. But the things we want to focus in on today is, what is Jesus' goal for his followers? If he's the Lord, if he's Savior, really don't we want to ask him, what's your goal for us? 
I mean, what, what is the target you are setting for us? Jesus, in the sermon, he's going to start off and he's going to say, blessed are these kind of people. He's going to say blessed. And, and again, that Greek word is really happy in the Lord. It's, it's, it's blessed by the Lord if you have this kind of character. And so it's really important for us, those of us, by God's grace, who follow Jesus, who love him, to hear his words to say, hey, what is it that you want us to have as a goal? What is it that you want us to pursue? Because we know that in our flesh, we want to pursue our own goals, and the world will tell us certainly what we should be after. But this morning, as we look at this incredible text, we're going to see three things. The first thing we got to look at is the congregation to whom Jesus preached. It was a big congregation, but we got to know for sure who was he speaking to, and how does that relate to us? So the congregation to whom Jesus preached. Secondly, the character of the blessed followers of Jesus. He calls us blessed. And thirdly, the conduct of the blessed followers of Jesus. So again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 5, uh, the sermon begins in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 16. Let's be mindful. This is God's holy and errant word. It'll never lead us astray. All right, hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, which was the posture for a rabbi to teach, when he sat down, his disciples, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its, uh, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, Father God, how tragic would it be for us to live our lives pursuing the wrong goal? How tragic would it be for us to be heading in the wrong direction of a pursuit of our lives? No matter if we are just beginning a life or no matter if we're toward the end of the life, God, we want to know, are we running the right race? And we thank you that Jesus would come to rescue the lost because all of us are running the wrong race apart from his grace. And we thank you that Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth, will tell us what our goals should be, would tell us what blessedness is. 
would tell us how we are to live. Jesus, you have every right to tell us that because you've created us in your triune image of our, of our great God. You've redeemed us by the, your blood and you've filled us with your spirit. We are yours, so come and teach. Speak through a broken sinner like me. God, give us ears to hear your voice, minds that understand your word. God, give us hearts that embrace your truth. And give us feet that would run the right race, that would walk in a manner worthy of your name. God, the things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May those things be forgotten and fall away quickly. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, oh God, use those things to make us blessed. Use those things to make us more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus. It's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. So in high school, my absolute favorite class, which didn't really rival a lot of classes, I'm probably like many of you, didn't have a lot of favorite classes, but clearly in high school, the greatest class you could be in in New Hartford Central School was ecology. And it was ecology, it wasn't just because of the subject matter, what made ecology the class you wanted to be in, first of all, was the teacher, was Mr. Penns. You know that teacher that was cool? You know that teacher that kind of got you? The teacher that you just kind of had a little, you know, just somehow he was different than the other teachers in some way. That was Mr. Penns. And maybe it was his classroom. Because you walk into Mr. Penns' classroom, and he's got like bark on, on the walls. He had a caribou, uh, a huge caribou. I mean, he had a an eagle. I mean, that thing had to be four feet tall. Uh, he had snake skins. I mean, just going in his classroom alone was like, wow. It was like a museum. You get bored, you look at the wall. It was amazing stuff. But the field trip, I'm not kidding you. We were assigned cross-country skis. We were told, hey, where are your will stuff tomorrow? We're going cross-country skiing for class. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. He took us on canoeing. We did all these great things. But the, the height of ecology class was that you had to go either in the fall or in the winter up to the Adirondacks to Racket Lake for several days with your classmates to do experiments and to just kind of live out in the woods. I had to go in the winter, couldn't play in the fall because of sports, and went in the winter, snow, I mean, snow that would be taller than me. I mean, the snow that they would get up there was unbelievable. Cross-country skiing at night on a frozen lake. Listen, it was so cold in winter. We drove our bus on the lake. Can you imagine doing that this day? Can you imagine the liability of like, getting buses on a frozen lake? But they knew the science for it. They knew how to drill down, and they knew if you had a certain amount of inches of ice, you're safe to drive. So that was amazing. It was amazing. One of the things we did was orienteering. Anybody know what orienteering is? It's where you got to get your compass, and they give you some uh, navigational points. I don't know what you call them. And you got to go find flags, right? They divide you into teams, and they say, now here, start here, follow these degrees on your compass, and you will find these flags, and off you go. They assign me team leader. Oh, man. You can pray for those people even now. <laughs> They're probably terrified. So I, I took my compass. They said, now listen, when you get the compass in orange, you want to put it right here. You want to make sure you got it right here. You can read it. You can, you can keep it steady right there. But I found out later that it was right next to my whistle. And maybe my whistle had a little bit of problem magnetically throwing off due north. But all I know is my group, we went off with my leadership and we were lost. And thank God for whistles because we were blowing those suckers, wanting people to come and to find us. Eventually, thank God, they did. 
So when it goes to directions, you want to make sure, do you have the right leader? When it comes to being direction, do you have the right compass in life? And we know that ultimately the greatest leader is Jesus, right? Uh, he is that. He's the greatest compass. He's the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And so we know that we are safe with him. And so here we have this ultimate leader in this ultimate way who's going to teach us the way to live. So we better listen up. And so we first of all see the congregation to whom Jesus preached. And it starts off by saying Jesus went up on the mountain. Now, if you read the Bible a bit and you know a little bit more of the story uh, of God, you know that a teacher on a mountain, a prophet on a mountain, is a really important thing. This is exactly what Moses did, right? I mean, in the Old Testament, God called Moses up on a mountain and he gave them the law of God. So here we see like a parallel, one who's even greater than Moses, who himself goes up on a mountain. As a matter of fact, uh, I love the way the Gospel of John describes Jesus. So this is in the New Testament. John 1, 16 and 17 says this. Moses gave God's people the law on Mount Sinai, but Jesus gave grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were given through Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is going to go, to go on to say right after what I read, hey, listen, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to say what Moses did wasn't important and that God didn't give us this law. I came, it's amazing, Jesus, I came to fulfill the law. I came to magnify the law. Everything that's required in the law, I did. And so because of that fulfilling of God's law, he gives us grace. He fills the law for us. He is grace. He is truth. Uh, and now, for us to have God's grace and truth, we embrace Christ Jesus. He is the truth. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. So he's telling his disciples, this is reality. Listen, I'm this way. He's up on the mountain. And boy, is he going to magnify the law. He's going to say, you've heard it said, but let me tell you what the real deal. So who is he there? Who's there? We want to focus on this. He preached to his disciples. It was to them. Yes, there was a crowd around him. There was a crowd. And we don't, Jesus, I'll tell you what, the way he healed people, the way he spoke, there was a crowd. I mean, the way he fed 5,000 with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread, there were crowds. But he sat down and he talked to his disciples. You've got to understand, he's talking to followers of Christ. You read the Sermon of the Mount, and you want to say, who is this for? This is for those who, by God's grace, have embraced Christ as Savior. It's interesting. The sermon says nothing about repenting and believing. That's for the non-believer, right? Hey, the Messiah is here. Repent of your sins and believe. Now, he is speaking to his disciples. He directs it to them, those who already know Jesus as Lord and Savior, not to those who have yet to come. But it's interesting who else he preaches this sermon to. It's not to the religious and it's not to the irreligious. Very interesting. There's a distinction here. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus rails against. Jesus is angry with the religious, and he seems to be angry with the irreligious. So who are the religious? They're, they're these scribes, which are teachers of the law. Pharisees, which are like people who really wanted to do the law. They wanted to be the most holy. They said the longest prayer. They wanted to think that you were the most, they were the most 
uh, godly people by their external religion. So the scribes and the Pharisees, their religion was all about self-righteousness. Their religion was all about, I got to do this so that God would like me. I got to do this so others will praise me. It was all about them. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't, they, they worship me with their, their, their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. They're hypocrites. You know, they say long prayers just to be heard. They give just to be seen. I mean, they do it, they do it not for my glory and my Father. They do it for themselves. So the religious people, don't be like them. Hit pause. Don't you love that? That Jesus isn't calling you into a religion just to do all these nuts and bolts things. He's called us into a relationship. So he's saying this, don't be like the religious. But then he also says, don't be like the irreligious. I mean, the tax collectors and, and the Gentiles. I mean, those who don't know God, who are walking in darkness, well, don't be like them. So this sermon is very important. This sermon is for his followers, those those who are, I'm going to call, gospel-soaked people, those who have heard the good news of what Christ is doing and has done for them, that embrace him as Lord and Savior, those who, who make him king. These are for those of us in the church um, who are his. Do you know what the word church in Greek is? It's very interesting. It's ekklesia. It's a compound word. Ek means out, and then called out. So the, the word means called out. What is the church? Well, the church, that's us, right? Those of us who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Those who have been called out of irreligion and religion into relationship. Those who are his. So that's who the sermon is directed to. So if you're here and you are a follower of Christ, and not just religious and not just had a religious ceremony, but I mean a follower of Christ, this is for you. And if you're not a follower of Christ, Listen to this. It may not make sense because the Spirit's not in you, but just listen to what Christ has said is blessed. So the second thing is this, the character of the blessed followers of Jesus. I love this because, man, you put what Jesus says is blessed next to the American dream, and you're thinking, holy cow, is there, a, is there like a world between these things, right? What Jesus says is blessed and what we've grown up thinking is blessed, what our culture says is blessed, I mean, these are, these are things on different ends of the spectrum. But Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he's basically saying this, you know what, who the blessed ones are? Blessed are the ones who know their spiritual poverty. Not the ones who think they're self-righteous. Not the ones who think that they're going to do enough and be good enough for God to accept and love and embrace them. These are the people who know they're knuckleheads. These are the people who know they're broken. These are the people who know that they don't have to pretend of being something they're not. They're poor in spirit. They realize they got nothing to barter with a holy God with. They know that they're, we're in trouble apart from God's grace. One of my favorite songs is Rock of Ages. And I want you to hear the lyrics of this. It's so much true of those who are blessed, uh, uh, the poor in spirit. It, maybe it sounds familiar. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So the blessed is those who know that they're sinners and they need a Savior because that's what Jesus came for. He goes, listen, I didn't come for those who think they're well. I came for those who knew they're sick. 
I came for those who know they're broken. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And now, this isn't mourning like, like mourning for a loss of a daughter or a loss of a spouse. That's certainly mourning. This is a different kind of mourning. This is the mourning for the loss of innocence. This is the mourning over what sin has done. This is the effect and the brokenness of sin in your life, in your family, in your community, in the world. This is mourning, as Psalm, the psalmist would say, just looking around and seeing all the junk, all the brokenness. I mean, we should be, as God's people, wake up and, and go to our news feed of choice, and our hearts should be broken. I mean, look what sin has done. Ten more people were killed in California yesterday in a mass shooting. I mean, look what the world has done. I mean, it's, it's torn apart, and you mourn over it. Because this is not the world that our Father created, right? He made us in His image. We've lost paradise because of our sin. We mourn. We long uh, for it to be fixed. But Jesus has told us that He's making all things new, and that's where we find our comfort. We're going to be comforted. He hasn't just left the building. Blessed are those who are meek. They shall inherit the earth. And, I, and this, this meekness, they possess gentle, humble strength. They are self-effacing. Our culture doesn't even hardly know what self-effacing is. Humility, gentleness. Paul will say it this way in Philippians 2. He tells us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of us should have the attitude of Christ Jesus. Now hit pause. Did you hear the craziness that Paul just said? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? In humility, consider your needs more important than mine, even on I-4, even when I drive? Are you kidding? But this is somebody who's gentle, somebody who's found their identity in Christ. It has nothing to prove. Somebody who, who realizes that the strength that God gives us is to be used for his glory and not our own selfish ambition. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness is hungering for something different than what this world offers. We're broken, and we all hunger and thirst. There's not one person here who doesn't hunger and thirst. We all want to fill the hole that we all have in our souls. Scripture tells we have it. We all are running, and we're all are digging, and we're all trying to fill that hole. And the Bible say, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your very soul? The world isn't so big that it can fit in that hole. The only thing that could fit in that hole of our brokenness is God, His righteousness and grace. And so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they've stopped running for the world to find their worth. They started to turn to God and seek ye first the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's like Psalm 42, which says, As the deer pants for living waters. Can you picture that? As the deer panteth for the flowing streams of living water, so my soul pants for you. I long for you and to know and love you. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it really leads us to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's beyond ourselves. That's from God to the gospel. Now, let me, I just said that. Let me, let me just make sure you understand that. All of us are sinful. All of us are broken. Scripture will say it this way, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, right? Every one of us. Scripture will tell us we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Scripture will say there's not one who is good. Wow, that's incredible. So seeking after a righteousness in us is like seeking after our own dunghill. 
It's like, I love what the way Isaiah 64, 6 says. Listen to this. That our righteous acts, the good stuff, in God's holy eyes is filthy rags. I mean, and the literal Hebrew of filthy rags is a monthly thing a woman goes through. So gross, right? I mean, are we thinking that our righteousness in God's eyes is going to get us loved? Are you kidding me? We're not even come close. Hey, God, can you please bless my dunghill here? No. We've got to look for a righteousness that's not even our own. And that's the good news of the gospel. Paul was a religious guy who thought Christians were crazy, and he started persecuting them. He had some killed. Uh, he said, no, 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 we're good Jews. This Jesus is crazy. We've got to take out his followers. And Jesus meets him, a resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. You might know the story, changed his life forever. I mean, this guy knew his Old Testament Bible, really righteous in the world's eyes, right? But here's what he writes in Philippians 3. Paul writes, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, which, which is like dung, compared to the surpassing greatness of Christ, in order that I may gain Christ. And he says this, this is very interesting. And I may be found in him, having faith, not having a righteousness of my own through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by all means, by, by all means possible may obtain the resurrection of the dead. So here's what Paul's saying. That in the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us, there's an exchange that take, takes place. It takes place on the cross. That all your junk and brokenness was placed on Jesus. And so a holy father could pour his wrath out on it. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He couldn't even look at the sin. But there was an exchange. Not only did he, he pay the price for our sins, but he lived that perfect life, that righteousness, that there's now an exchange that can place, that Jesus takes our junk and he gives us his righteousness, the righteousness of God. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied only when they find Jesus. Remember, this is not the Jesus of religion. This is the Jesus of relationship. This is the Jesus of Lord and Savior. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you hunger for that? Have you found it in Christ Jesus? I mean, the righteousness of God, are you kidding me? That God would take him who knew no sin, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and make him sin so that in Christ Jesus we could become the righteousness of God in Christ? Unpack that. That's the gospel. It's so beautiful. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Mercy, Those who have compassion for those in need. And the only people who have compassion on those in need who don't have their eyes just fixed on themselves, right? But their eyes are fixed on the God who created them, Jesus who redeemed them, and those around them. And may we be a church that's merciful, not judgmental, merciful. Because they're like us, broken, and they need a Savior. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. And again, this isn't, you've got to be pure in heart to get in. This is, again, this is to those who believe. But blessed are those who have an inward purity, not trying to prove a religion to those around them, but having a heart that beats for Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. I want to take you to, I, I quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21, but let me back up to verse 17. 
He says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this means anyone who's given their life to Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's like, a, it's like born again, John would say. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're a new creature. All this is from God, who through Christ his Son. Now watch this. Don't, don't, don't lose me. He reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God is saying that there's a reconciliation that takes place only through Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you've been reconciled with God. He's no longer someone to be terrified of, although we should fear and love him. He's Father. He's Abba Father. He's drawn us near to him. That Christ, uh, that, in, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. A holy God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But watch this. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God has saved us in Christ Jesus to be reconciled to him, to tell the world that they should be reconciled too. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through you and me. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So here's the gospel. For God, for, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. And in Christ Jesus, we should have peace with one another. And in Christ Jesus, we should be peacemakers. Not just pot stirrers. Not stone throwers. Not finger pointers. Peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Your reward is great in heaven. I don't know if you know Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy, but he's one of my heroes. Not only led the Tampa Bay Bucks to a, uh, I guess he did, Indianapolis Colts to a world championship. Got the Bucks close. And then that John, what's his face, took them to the promised land. Somebody help me out. Come on. Gruden. But Tony Dungy, amazing man of God. Read his book if you haven't. You know what Tony Dungy stands for? God, righteousness, life. So he takes a stand because that's who he is. He's a man of conviction, amazing conviction. He says that life's important. He goes on a walk to life, and the liberals hate him for it. They say, how can he be on the NFL network? How can he be on the most watched TV program if somebody who's that much of a bigot, that much of a bigot against other people in our society? Tony says, I believe because I believe this is how I live. Because this is how I live, he gets persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Then those of you who are hockey fans, and I hope there are many in here, Ivan Provorov, a good Russian defenseman for the Philadelphia Flyers. This last week, it's Gay Pride Night in Philadelphia. And before the game, everybody's supposed to wear a jersey that supports an LGBTQ lifestyle. He says because of religious convictions. Here's what he says. I respect everybody, and I respect everybody's choices, but my choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. So he doesn't go out to the pregame skate. He doesn't go out and wear the jersey that everybody else wears. And man, is he being persecuted for taking a stand, for saying, you know what, I have convictions that are going to make me not embrace this. I, 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 wanna, I don't want to be throwing stones, but I don't want to be associated. By the way, his jersey was sold out too. So those who support him say, yeah, we're going to support you, bro. Um, Anyway, the Bible tells us this. If anyone desires to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Now, hit pause. If you want to live for Jesus, it's going to cost you something. 
It's not going to be easy. The world's going to say you're a lunatic. Following some guy that lived a long time ago, not doing what the culture says. You want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. And let me tell you something. If you live your life and you're not persecuted for your faith, there's something going on. Um, okay, and then not only the character, then we lastly we have the conduct of our blessed followers of Jesus. Jesus, this is, we've got to get this. This is so, so important. If you heard nothing else, tune back into this. Jesus is calling his followers to be counter-cultural. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to be different than those who don't know him. Satan would love us to look just like the world. I mean, the, the worst thing we could do is blend into society. The worst thing we could do is not stick out like a sore thumb. The worst thing we could do is to be just like them. Jesus says, don't be like the irreligious who don't know God. Don't be like the religious who think they know God, but they're hypocrites. Be this, salt of the earth. Salt is a condiment that flavors and a preservative that fights decay, right? That's what it is. So we are told, be salt of the earth. He's saying, add flavor to the community around you. Be the aroma of Christ, right? Live for him. Just be you. Be you in love with him. That's all you got to do. And that will be salty for the world. Be salty. May your love for Jesus make others thirsty. Man, tell me about this God. Tell me about this one that you love. But salt does something else, especially before refrigeration. It fought decay. He's like, hey, listen, you are the ambassadors. You are the ones who are to fight decay of society. Don't remain silent. Don't let them slide. You know, listen, you can't fix it all, but, but I'm calling you to be salt. I'm, I'm going to press you into some places to, to, to make the world less of a decaying world. If saltiness loses its saltiness, he says it's useless. You might as well throw it out and trample over it. And here's what he's saying. Christian, if there's no distinction in you and others, if we're living our lives just like the world, and if there's nothing salty about us, it's useless. It's vain. He's called us to himself at great cost to himself to be the salt of the earth, but also the light of the world. He said, be the light of the world. I, I love this reality. Um, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this. He says, I am the light and life of men. If you want life, you've got to find him. If you want light, you've got to find him. In him was light and life and was the light of men. I love this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. And in Christ Jesus, now he says, now we are the light of the world. Remember, we don't generate the light. He is. He does. Jesus is the light shining in us and through us. My favorite analogy, we're like that stained glass window. We're broken pieces. We're broken pieces by God's grace that he's putting back together. And the light of Christ shines through us, and it tells a beautiful story. I mean, that's, that's who we are, so the world will know him and praise him. I love it. it says to say, listen, be the light of the world so everybody praises you. No, 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 be the light of the world so they see what you're doing for God and they praise him. Man, this God's amazing. How is it with you? According to Jesus' sermon on the mount, are you pursuing the right goals? Do you have this blessed character of Christ's followers? And do you have the blessed comfort of Jesus' followers to be the salt and the light? This is our goal and aim. 
This is what God's word has told us and what Jesus desires for us. I got one more thing to say. What God requires of us, God provides for us. And God requires perfection. He's holy. God required his law be fulfilled. And he did it for us. He sent his son to live the life that every one of us failed to live. And not only that, he fulfilled it for us to give us the righteousness of God. And everything we deserve as knuckleheads that are broken, he bore on the cross. This is not a message of guilt. This is a message of grace. This is a message that says, are you his? This is what he's done for us. And this is our goal, what our goal should be. We're still knuckleheads, but we're forgiven knuckleheads. And we're his. And now may we live as the salt of the earth. Now may we live as the light of the world. For the glory of our great God and for the good of our neighbor. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us enough to send your son. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to put on flesh and dwell among us. And Jesus, we thank you for that Sermon on the Mount. Oh man, just to, to be there. But I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that in a sense we were there because we have these words. God, I pray for each one of us. I pray for maybe the person who thinks the goal is religious, to be religious. Oh God, that you'd show them the gospel truth, to be in relationship. And maybe for the one who's irreligious, far from you, that you would show them the grace that Jesus is filled with grace and truth. That God, each one of us, would live for you in your glory. It's the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So the world would know who you are and how you love. We pray in your matchless name. Amen.